Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning. Good morning, Annie. Yes, it's wonderful. We both were at the uh, big uh, demo last night outside Crown. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was very noisy. I think that everyone who was, you know, having their alfresco dining at Crown... New. Scuttled away. <laughs> Scuttled away. <laughs> or some of them came up and uh, I talked to them and they're like, oh, I just want to listen to the speeches. So yeah. that's good. Yeah, that's right. Because, of course, the uh, people who work from 7pm uh, to 7am are hoping to get penalty rates for their, oh, and their, nice. weekend, their weekend work. It's Par- pretty ridiculous that they don't. Well, that's right. Was it $3 an hour? And they work an average of 40 weekends a year. I think that's... That's exactly right. Anyway, they're all pretty happy chappies in, and uh, with the lights and kids and banging drums and generally uh, general excitement, more excitement than uh, that uh, foreshore in front of uh, Crown has seen for a while. Yes. When I was walking back, I saw those, you know, those giant things that shoot out gas and... Oh, I know. <laughs> and I, I was just staring at it thinking... How much gas and money are you wasting on that? That's probably, you know, a fair, you know, loading deal just right there going up in... In smoke. In smoke. That's right. The first time I saw that, I was riding my bike and I almost fell off. It gave me such a fright. You can actually feel the warmth. I know. It's it's quite, it feels quite idea. dangerous, not... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's a bit like I can smell the napalm in the morning because it's got that kerosene kind of spell. Well, I kind of imagine the whole Crown Casino as being a kind of dragon, that kind of smog thing. And to me, that's its nostrils and you go into the belly and there's someone like lying on a huge pile of money. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the fight's on. They want their uh, penalty rates, uh, which is uh, right. Exactly. They do. And they deserve it, especially since, of course, uh, the Crown got uh, something like $660 million in profit. We're just talking profit here which was a 30% increase last year. God, it's amazing, isn't it? I suppose it's people's misery and rich people's boredom. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I don't know. Uh, gambling's not really my, my... My big gambling story is uh, my father's advice, which is when you go to the races, stick uh, pin $5 to your collar so that you can uh, get home. <laughs> <laughs> And my and I added to that, which is uh, don't don't uh, trust a, a, a betting advice from an old man under a tree, because they'll always give you the second pick, not the first. Oh right, I see. <laughs> anyway. I've actually I've never bet on the races, but every sweep that I've been in, because they make you do it at school, I've won. Oh, you yeah. I've got Maccabi Diva like 
two years in a row. <laughs> That's fantastic. You've got the luck. I'm I'm convinced that certain people have the luck and everybody else hasn't, but I know that's probably just Irish ma- magical thinking. Anyway, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and uh, we've got lots of things to share with you today. Uh, we're going to explore a film called Motorkite Dreaming, which is a great cross-cultural uh, adventure film. That's what it is. It, uh, we'll get uh, the director, uh, Charlie Hill-Smith, to explain what it's about. And then we'll go on and have a chat with uh, Carol Carpengiri uh, uh, about uh, his role as uh, the Aboriginal uh, Indigenous uh, um, Protocols man. You know, he, he in, and, the uh, in the movie, he, he uh, helped to uh, set up uh, the uh, conversations between the 24 language groups across the Australian continent because uh, I won't I won't spoil it for you, but you have to go and see it because it's a great film and we'll give you some um, information about the dates. You can just go on to Motorkite uh, Dreaming website and you can find out where it's showing. Uh, but uh, And you can get a whole range of other things as well. Later on, we're going to talk to Chris White about the a- the threat of the ABCC. It hasn't Ooh. gone away. Ooh. It hasn't gone away. And if you've forgotten what the letters, we're going to corral the letters. It's the Australian Building Construction Code. Do It hasn't gone away. That will just uh, It's just morphing and he considers it a major risk. So we'll have a yarn with uh, Chris White about that. This is the week that is that was. We'll be on at about eight twenty, and following that, we're going to go back and have a chat with uh, Vince Emanuel about American politics. Uh, a big long chat with Vince, and uh, we'll do it in two parts over this week and uh, another week that we're on because it was fascinating chat. He's he's a very fascinating man. Is Vince Emanuel? He's an ex-soldier, done a couple of tours of duty in um, Iraq, and uh, saw the light. Uh, and uh, has uh, done a major left turn. So <laughs> so we're going to talk to him from Chicago about... Uh, in fact, actually, I have to tell you something. The last time I spoke to Vince, he predicted... Uh, everything that he predicted came true. Trump has become the... Um, well, he has an overactive imagination. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and he then said that uh, Bernie Sanders' followers would fall behind uh, Clinton. Isn't that incredible, I said. And, uh, and I said to him, oh, Vince, everything came true. And he said, ha, ha, and he laughed and he said, uh, well, there you go. It must make me feel good. <laughs> but anyway, we'll move on and uh, uh, get on with talking to Charlie Hill-Smith about his wonderful film, Motor Kite Dreaming. So Motor Kite Dreaming is a feature doco, and, uh, which we've made over the last four years. And it's about, it's a, the story's about two young Adelaide Hills white guys flying microlites from the Coorong in South Australia all the way up through the centre of Australia to Broome in Western Australia. And they travel through 20 Aboriginal language nations and visit a bunch of the most remote communities in the country. And their two ladies, their two fiancés, are chasing them with a, a four-wheel drive, a land cruiser full of petrol and food. What we've done here is we've, we've built a really exciting adventure film that takes in all of Australia from above, beautiful view of this beautiful amazing place. continent. And really it's a, a way of telling a story about Australia and Aboriginal Australia that will engage a non-Aboriginal audience and take them to some places and teach them some things about uh, the beautiful uh, cultures 
of Aboriginal Australia that perhaps they don't know. And in order to make this film, you actually did a lot of preparation, didn't you? You did a lot of cultural preparation. We did, we did, we did really strong uh, cultural protocols on motor kite dreaming, uh, working with Bart Sansbury from Narunga Nation in South Australia and Carol Carpenty from the Narunjeri Nation down in the Coorong. Two great South Australian blokes um, in their in their sixties, and um, uh, both um, you know involved in the struggle since the seventies. Bart was a Vietnam vet who came back and, and then fought in Queensland against the the fascists in Queensland and helped set up the first medical centres and fought a lot alongside Eddie Marbo. And Carol, of course, um, was one of the first members of Us Mob, um, first Aboriginal rock band, black politics band in the country, and he toured with, with Us Mob, and then has gone on to do a lot of art and culture. And so those two great uh, fellas led us into the desert, and they introduced us and set up a really good protocols process or protocols uh, experience with all the 20 Aboriginal languages uh, nations that we met. And we, we met TOs and we met elders all the way across the country, and we sat down. This was a year before we shot the film. We drove the full route, and sat down with the elders and the TOs and asked them permission to be there in their country at that time and then said, we'd like to come back the following year, bring our cameras and shoot this film to celebrate Aboriginal culture through this funny adventure story. Yeah, and as you were saying, this film isn't necessarily for Aboriginal Australia. This is for white Australia, isn't it? Yeah, look, this film's got plenty for, for blackfellas and for Aboriginal Australia because it's a beautiful celebration of the continent from SA through NT to that WA, and it's a celebration of Aboriginal culture. But really, this is, this is a Trojan horse narrative. We're, we're, we've made an adventure story for middle Australia, non-Aboriginal Australia, who, who are perhaps ill-educated or don't know their history and don't understand Aboriginal Australia. Um, and and this, this Trojan horse narrative, which looks and, and quacks like an adventure story, is actually a cross-cultural story. Mm. And um, even though um, Aboriginal audiences will, will love it because they'll see lots of themselves and lots of the beautiful country in it, it's really for non-Aboriginal audiences to bring them in and to celebrate and say, hey, have a, have a look at this amazing culture. Have a look at this oldest culture on earth. Take a second look because I think you've missed out on seeing the genius. Mm. And you've got uh, two, I mean, you've got the two couples. One couple is actually... Uh, far more savvy because uh, one, mm. they they've got bush skills mm. and they've also worked in the remote communities. But then you've got this fantastic couple mm. that really are, are like the every every person. They are, they are. They, they, they're like the they're like the, the two white fellows who've never been bush before. That's uh, Elsie and Daryl, and that, so they're they're inexperienced in going to the bush. Elsie's never been to an Aboriginal community, um, so it's all new to them. And they really are the sort of the, the litmus test, you know. Like what they go through is is for the, for the average um, non-Aboriginal audience um, will give them a sense of of how you can go to the bush and you can meet great people and you can have an adventure. Uh, and it's all here in your own backyard. Yeah, and it's delightful, isn't it? Because uh, they're actually, especially the woman, uh, she's very warm and very open, very uh, honest, very honest, strikingly honest. Yeah, she says things that make you make most people blush. Now, look, she's great. That's Elsie, and you know, she's she's never been to an Aboriginal community, and she says at the start that she's nervous. She doesn't know what to expect. She's she's heard so much negative press from the mainstream media that she's really confused and and doesn't know what to expect. And of course, it all goes bloody well. And we have a fantastic time, and we meet great people. And she's she sees in these Aboriginal communities. We end up in one of the communities is Kintour, the wonderful Central Western Desert community up couple of, you know, 800 k's, 900 k's from Alice Springs um, at a footy carnival up there, big desert footy carnival, fantastic. 
And uh, she has a wonderful time there. She's very nervous about it. But when she gets there, she sees the families. She sees the interaction. She sees the kids playing and, the, and the, all, the, all the women catching up, all the men catching up, and this great camaraderie. And she realizes this is what she appreciates and values in her life and in her family. And it gives her a sense of, um, wow, you know, this is the universal spirit that we all share mm. and, and expands her horizon. And, and that's uh, one of the uh, fabulous things about this film. And we shouldn't go away from the fact that it is a great film to watch in terms of an adventure because of the way you've shot it like, mm. yeah, and all the characters that are involved. Yeah, that's right. So, look, it's an independent film. Um, you know, for your viewers, uh, go to motorkitedreaming.com or to Motorkite Dreaming Facebook. Have a look at the teaser and a bunch of the stuff that's on there. And you'll see that we use lots of tiny cameras, these little GoPro cameras. Um, we didn't have a lot of money to shoot it, so we, we used uh, the technology that was available. And these little digital cameras are brilliant. And so the view of the country from these little oh, microlights, you know, flying, um, you know, only sort of 500 feet uh, off the ground, the view is better than a chopper. It's better than, a, than an aircraft. It's intimate. You know, you feel the country and you see the country. And wherever we went, whatever communities we went to, um, we took local elders and traditional owners for, for a fly, you know, at least the pilots did. And, um, you know, these old men and old women just loved it. You know, they get up there. And a lot of them have flown before, sure. But the view from the microlight where you're sitting outside, you know, like a bird, and you're looking down on the country from this intimate height, they just saw the country so clearly. And they told our pilots, hey, fly over here, have a look at this. This is a special place for, my, for, for me. Or fly over here and have a look at this. And um, it was beautiful, you know, doing that sort of like bush air taxi service. Was um, was greatly appreciated by the locals. Well, it's kind of interesting because it was uh, your classic uh, adventure yarn, mm. and uh, in fact, you've sold it to uh, a um, international uh, distribution arm of Red Bull. Isn't Red Bull, it? that's right. Yeah, a- as an adventure yarn. Yeah. But I, I, as I was watching it, it was kind of I had this sort of breathlessness about it because it was also a feeling of exploration. In you know, we were being taken. Yeah, uh, it was a gift. And we we explore. You know, the, sure we explore. We go across these four deserts and we explore you know, this four thousand kilometres of this beautiful country. But really, what we wanted to do is we wanted to, as that happened, for, for this this white and, and non Aboriginal audience that we that we made it for, we're trying to give them a sense of awe and a sense of appreciation for the brilliance, the creativity, and the genius of Aboriginal culture, yeah. past and living. And a lot of these, a lot of these non-Aboriginal audiences, they don't understand simple concepts about people's song and about Aboriginal philosophy and about song lines and about the connectivity of the country through song lines and through trade and marriage and so on. And this is a real, this is a real thing that connects the whole continent. Yeah, it's real. It's real and exists today. It's there right now. And the law is out there and the connectivity is out there. And a lot of city people just do not know this. It's an invisible intangible thing that they haven't been able to get their heads and they haven't get their hands on, they haven't get their, their heads around. So we try and give a, a, some explanations of that. So one example is when we take an old man, Morris Gibson, a very famous uh, painter from, literature painter from uh, up there in, um, in Kintour, a, a Pinnaby painter, and we take him up for a fly. He, he, he's a dot artist, Western Desert dot artist, and he's a man in his 60s, and we take him flying over the, over the beautiful desert, and he's seeing this land that he's painted from above. From above, yeah, I know. In, in, in the in the in the philosophical paintings of of um, of that that region, he's painted it for fifty years, but he's never flown uh, in this intimate aircraft like that above above the land before. So he goes for a fly, and, and then we we just do a simple thing where where we dissolve between some of his paintings and what he's seeing from the microlight, and it's a simple trick. 
but it's very moving and powerful for a non-Indigenous audience who've always heard about this, um, the iconography of, of dot art painting from above, but never really sort of seen it portrayed like that. And it just gives them another appreciation of the love for country, the detail of knowledge of country, the philosophy of knowledge of country. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. I love that announcement. It's so cute. It puts you into another phase or a feeling. And uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and... Kim. That's right. Myself. Yeah, that's right. And we've just been listening to Charlie Hill-Smith, who's talking about his film uh, Motor Kite Dreaming. But uh, I also had the opportunity to have a chat with uh, Carol Cup and Jerry. Now, Carol is one of the original uh, Asmob uh, musicians, and uh, he was the responsible for uh, one of the member, people responsible for doing the uh, protocols across the country to uh, allow motorkite dreaming to come to those 24 language groups across the country. Anyway, I thought I'd uh, ask him about his experience, and then it turned into a, a much um, even more interesting conversation because, of course, Carol, as it turns out, is Aboriginal royalty. Did you know that? No. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's one of the reasons why you should go and see the film because it really opens your eyes to another way of looking at this country. You've met royalty. Yeah, I have. Pengeti. Say it again. Carpengeti. Carpengeti. Yeah, great. Because I knew I was getting it wrong. Um, it's, thank you very much for coming in and having a yarn with me. Um, we're, we're, we're going to talk about motor kite dreaming in a second, but uh, I was just saying that uh, I saw you with Kutcher Edwards and Robbie Thorpe the other day, and you all look so happy. And uh, you can tell me why you're feeling so happy. Well, we feel so happy because um, um, politically and culturally, we are much more um, uh, established and stable. Uh, with regards to getting uh, the political and cultural masses out, um, uh, the political and cultural messages out to the masses, the masses of Australians, particularly those Australians that have inquiring minds to the fact that something is very wrong in this country and they're not quite sure um, uh, what questions to ask uh, uh, until their inquiring minds are face-to-face with um, Aboriginal leaders, particularly those Aboriginal leaders that can inform and build the knowledge base of um, uh, young Australians. Now, you, you've, uh, when you were a young man, um, young fella in the 70s, you stood up, didn't you, and used culture to uh, explain to mainstream Australia what was going on for you guys. Sure, and that um, the only available um, vehicle, if you like, or the tool was music. And, of course, that was the advent with um, the creation of Us Mob, um, uh, a bunch of four young men that um, totally tired of police 
harassment building dossiers on just to discredit us. And um, that um, discreditation has to do with that we're 10 times more unlikely to get a bank loan, 10 times more unlikely to get a job, 10 times more unlikely to get someone to sit alongside you on the bus. Uh, um, uh, but even though um, 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 uh, we're still here and there's a lot of pride because we come through the tumultuous turmoil of the jungle that was set before us. Uh, we're ambushes, political ambushes, we're constant. Uh, and we've come through and we're still smiling. So when you see me, Kutch and Robbie sitting down, we're talking about another opportunity where we can engage uh, Australians, particularly those young Australians that are thirsty for the right knowledge, uh, that have the inquiring minds that will make an effort. Well, that will say, hello, how are you? In fact, um, um, I can you know, positively say that the awareness level of young Australians are right up there. We just have to um, uh, make available that link to get them to the knowledge. And as I mentioned to you earlier, Annie, that uh, we now have availability and access to print electronic media so that we can, so that we can engage those inquiring minds. So uh, motor kite dreaming, what, uh, how did you get involved in that? Because that's an opportunity as well, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. That is precisely one of the vehicles that has uh, an enormous potential through the print and electronic media to reach people in the most wonderful way, an effective way. Uh, I got involved. Um, Charlie Hill-Smith, who's the director, we're long-time friends, um, the type of friends that don't live in each other's pocket. <laughs> Pockets, uh, but when there's an enormous opportunity like motor kite dreaming come up, um, it's uh, really clever, isn't it? It's really, really clever. And of course, as you get older, you get more knowledge and you get more uh, articulate, and you realise the, the the groups of skills that you get um, over time, and and they fit perfectly. You know, the spanner fits perf- perfectly the nuts and bolts of uh, motor kite dreaming. Yeah, yeah, the whole idea. So tell me about the journey that you and Bart took to uh, ask, because you come from a particular group of people. You're a Naranjiri. That's correct. And so you were going into other people's uh, country, weren't you? That's correct. Um, one day I was sitting at home and, um, and Charlie called me and says, you need an email? And I said, yep. And we flicked uh, through the um, synopsis of Motorkite Dreaming. And of course, when I realised its direct its direction, where it was going, crossed the breadth of this beautiful country, I said, "Yep," because I will do anything to go to the unscathed areas of Australia where things are very much intact, where you can uh, um, um, realise the beauty, the beauty of this magnificent country, and not only that, you can realise the. Uh, um, uh, the enormous amount of pride on Aboriginal people of looking after this country for centuries. Uh, so my engagement after reading um, the synopsis, Charlie asked me if I can do the protocols for the 24 nations of people, which I had absolutely no effort in saying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and needless to say, unlike Father Christmas folks, we didn't climb down the chimney to ask. We went to the front door and demonstrated our natural respect and if you want 
others to respect you then you respect others so the door was became open and um, we were given permission the formula the subject matter of that formula is love peace harmony justice and understanding certainty and longevity of humanity uh, which happens to be aboriginal law at, at its core when in Motorkite Dreaming, uh, in the film, you actually went to a place where people said you were Aboriginal royalty. Wow, yeah. Um, that was pretty impressive. That is impressive. Um, uh, you know, when, you, when, when our leadership is constantly being pounded, when decisions and agreements are constantly being changed... Um, that builds an enormous and aggressive nature in young people because all that shifty, shifty carry-on affects young people. And it affected me so much that um, I didn't know which way to turn, but I didn't realise that I had a, uh, an incredible bag of skills called music. And... Um, uh, unlike many Australians, when I, I grew up in a um, community, that's right, detention, a, de- a detention situation, which is no different than the modern detention that you see today, like, a little bit like the recent goings on in, in the Northern Territory. Um, and then um, uh, later, that that ability to travel into um, greater urban Australia was allowed, and then and the people forget, don't they? People really do forget. It's it's a horror journey, and I still pinch myself today because I'm very normal <laughs> <laughs> after what we've been through. But you and know, you're generous too. I am. I am because I remember my grandfather's words. You know, don't get mean, get even. You know. You know, don't don't work hard. Work smarter. You know, this is a near hundred year old grandfather who 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 had bestowed upon him some you know some atrocious conditions, but he was able to give me sustaining advice. And then I watched my parents, and then I watched the whole community. And I'm so glad that all my uncles and my father and my family were a group of musicians because the power of observation has led me to the very point to where I am now. And um, um, and the journey has allowed me to um, attach normally, naturally, to great Australians, you know, great Australians that um, care and that want to see change because they realise the mechanisms of of um, of um, the mechanisms and beauties and those mechanisms of love, peace, justice, and understanding, and security and longevity, and uh, they want to see change. And of course, um, you know there was. Um, um, and then one day after I left the mission, I arrived at uh, the Centre for Aboriginal Studies and Music in Adelaide, which um, was an initiative of the um, 
Salvation Army uh, where there were individuals in there with a consciousness and, and, and given back in the day, um, all of our men were locked up, you know, uh, for really ridiculous, atrocious crimes, um, asking other Australians for a light for their cigarette or directions to the bus stop. You know, they weren't allowed to any fraternisation with anybody. Uh, and, of course, my father was one of those who, you know, got 12 months for asking a lady for a light of a cigarette. And um, Was that in Adelaide? Adelaide, yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, we can... We can um, 12 months? Yeah. And, um, you know, it's um, not much fun having a, not having a dad around. Yeah. That's... It yeah. just takes your breath away. Yeah, and so I, I arrived at um, uh, CASM, Centre for Aboriginal Studies and Music, which was um, the only leadership we had in our communities were our women. And, um, and they started um, the Aboriginal Women's Support Group. And I can remember the Salvation Army coming on to Point, Point Pierce, the community where I was raised. And as you mentioned earlier, I'm Ngarindjeri, and for those listeners that need location, uh, the Ngarindjeri people are at the mouth of the great Murray River in the Kurong, the beautiful Kurong. That's right, the beautiful uh, Kurong. That is my traditional land. So it was um, Ngarindjeri women and Naranga women and Ghana women that were allowed to, uh, <laughs> I use that, allowed to, so it was tolerated by the government and the authorities because the Salvation Army was involved. They're allowed to, under uh, no wages condition, and only under voluntary practices to set up the music. And as I mentioned, back on Point Pierce, the Salvation Army was active there because they had the, always had these beautiful brass, machine, brass instruments. And of course, uh, I've always wanted to play brass. But um, never ever got there until I got to Chasm. And the first week of rocking up in Chasm, I met the other four members of uh, back in the seventies. <laughs> well, it goes so far back, doesn't it? Uh, working with um, the then the new initiated Aboriginal legal rights, where which I was the field officer. And how um, did you meet Ned Lander and do uh, Wrong Side of the Road? Yeah, well they. Um, uh, Graham Isaacs is one of the guitar tutors at Chasm. Yeah, right. And um, they just had this wild idea because um, great film. Oh yeah, it's a it's a classic. Um, you have to have a look at it. It's in the it's currently sits in the top one hundred most Australian requested movies. It's very educational, folks. So I met Ned there, and away we went. And of course, um, us mob was um, uh, really was. Uh, was the was the tools and the uh, and the mechanism from stop me from going crazy because it gave me a release where we can sing about uh, the plights, uh, given that music is the international language. It has no barriers. It can crack through everything. Uh, and um, um, twelve months later, wrong side of the road. It's all happened pretty, pretty, pretty quickly, and it was made on on sixty thousand dollars, or otherwise, the smell of an oily rake. Um, wow, as it's still impacting um, uh, Australians today, um, and it's like it is a wow factor because um, it actually took off the quilts and the blankets 
to the buggery that was going on as in terms of um, um, who's human and who's not. But it was a hell of a journey because we had a cluster of uh, undercover police officers following us around the country and creating havoc and provocation and all we had to do was sing a song. And um, But look here, listeners, I wouldn't change a thing in my, um, in my life, in my journey, because life is an everlasting curve of learning. Uh, I've learned so much, and it's shaped me into the person I am now. So, um, um, and, but unfortunately, a lot of my brothers and sisters uh, um, have been called to do other greater jobs and other fears or other planes. And so... They're pushing up daisies, and they're very beautiful daisies. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, so, <laughs> for, thanks for coming in and talking to me, Carol. I'm, I'm so glad that you contributed to motorkite dreaming as another boot, well, another no, way of giving people an opportunity um, to engage. Yes, yes, motorkite dreaming. Uh, I recommend that listener to all young people. Um, beware, there is a PG on it, but it shouldn't be there. Why is there a PG on it? Because when you're um, uh, an adventurer, not all goes right. So you let the F U C K word out a couple of times. Oh my of god! Times. <laughs> what, what <laughs> That's stunning. I didn't realise. Yeah, and uh, if you get to see um, um, uh, Motorkite Dreaming, and it will come to you, it'll be in a theatre um, near you very soon because of how it's had a wonderful Australian response. We, um, I. Charlie would have talked about it. We uploaded the the new trailer and it had 50,000 hits just like that. <laughs> it is magic. Well, it's a great film. And I think it must be because of my music. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. A new illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website... 3cr.org.au or pick up your copy at the station. I want to know where are we meant to go when this house is going to sit here doing nothing for how long? Where am I meant to take my children? I'm, I'm, I'm trying the hardest as a parent to do the right thing and care for them. I've had a home for 10 years. I'm not scared of paying bills, but due to the violence, we've had to leave it. And there's not many people at all around this city trying to put their hands up to help me and my kids. I'd just like to say, um, safe steps. They've let me down in a big way. They promised, um, you know, to help relocate me and my children. And um, we're Wurundjeri, we're traditional landowners. Where am I meant to take my kids? And this joint's just going to sit here and do nothing at all. Yeah, so if there are any organisations who hold the violence title and can give me a hand, 
you know, I'd really like to hear from you because there's not many joints at all. A lot of them need to drop the, the violence, the family violence title, I think, because I don't know where to go next. And, yeah, I'm just... Um, I'm really confused at the moment. I'm trying my hardest as a parent to do the right thing by my little followers, and um, I don't know where to go to next. So if anyone knows, I'd like to hear from them. Um, hello, my name's Lucy. I've been here for um, over two months now. Previous to this, I was um, sleeping in a vacant warehouse. I've... Um, I've been periodically homeless for the last 20 years. Um, some time ago, um, the, the mayor, Robbie Doyle, said who, the solution to homelessness was just don't be homeless. Um, I came to the street, I walked into an empty building, and then I was not homeless. Um, any minute now, the police are going to come and forcibly remove me from at the place the place where I've felt safer than I've ever felt in my entire life. I um, have experienced a community in this street. And, um, I've been around people that have allowed me to, to, to be myself for the first time ever um, without fear of violence. And... Um, Um, I, I, I just don't know what else to say. It's like my housing problem was solved and now it's going to be ended um, by a government who's, has, who I've given money to, who you've all given money to. Um, look, I'd just like to say throughout this that thank you all for your support and um, I, I really appreciate you being here. And um, something like this arises in the future and I dare say it's going to. Um, it would be great if you could support that too. Okay, thank you. The Bendigo Street occupation has received eviction notices from the government. They're calling for people to come down and help defend the space against eviction. If you would like to be on the phone tree to receive updates about what's going on and can come down when police are there to help the people who are occupying defend the houses from the police, please Text 0415-841-211 to be put on the phone tree. That number again, 0415-841-211. You're on Solidarity Breakfast and that's the voices from Bendigo Street down in Collingwood. They're calling for people to help them. And, uh, yes, they've been given an eviction notice uh, a day ago or so, and uh, they need people's support. Online at the moment, we've got uh, Chris White. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Chris. How are you? Very well, thank you. And we're going to talk about another threat, which is the ABCC. Can you give us an idea about why you consider it to be such a, a threat, even though it wasn't passed by the uh, last Senate before the election? Yes, well, I think this is one of the key political issues now that we've got a new Senate. And I think all unions, uh, all Solidarity Breakfast listeners, Anybody left of the Labor Party now has to concentrate on making sure that the new Senate, we've got Senator Hanson, Senator Hinch, Xenophon, uh, make sure that uh, Turnbull 
and the powerful corporations, the building corporations, the very rich businessmen don't pass this ABCC because it's extremely uh, anti-worker and if they get away with uh, passing this against the one million workers in the building industry then they'll go against all workers. So I'll be able to do a bit of a summary of this but I'll also try to explain and I think most listeners may already understand um, why no worker really wants to have a repressive state apparatus that they spending over 30 or 40 million to coerce workers on industrial relations issues, wages and conditions and health and safety. And many of the unionists say, oh, this is a fascist entrenchment. And I like to argue and say it's really based on what we call the Stasi model. The Stasi model, the Stasi were the feared Stalinist East German state police and they had a different model where they tried to and succeeded through coercion to get children to dob in their mothers and fathers, to get neighbours to dob in uh, neighbours and to betray them. And here it's a coercive powers to get workers to dob in other workers, particularly if you're at a union meeting, for example, say in particularly in the building industry, and there's been a death on site, so a union meeting is called, a union organiser comes in, and people are upset about it, and they take action, and they take some industrial action, some strike action, and then three or four months later, the ABCC knocks on your door and says you have to come in and you have to dob in the union official for so-called unlawful industrial action. You have to record and tell on what all your workmates said. And this is really fearful because if you don't do this, if you don't agree with the ABCC, you can get six months jail. And there's no right to silence. Yes, and of course 3CR listeners already know because you run constantly advice on your radio program that said if you're picked up by the police you've got a right to give your name and address and say I don't want to make any comment but if you're inside this Stasi-like chamber you have no right you have no right to have a lawyer you have to no right to have a, a silence you're not actually even... you're not even allowed to tell people that you were picked up yes that's right so you you might be in there for four or five hours and I must uh, say that it's Hundreds and hundreds of building workers get pulled in. And then at one stage, for example, there was a university lecturer that was walking by a building site and he stopped and he heard all sorts of arguments going on. So he stopped and listened. And then six months later, he got pulled in. He wasn't able to tell his father and he had to uh, tell what he heard. Uh, and you're not even... So, you know, you might be away for four or five hours and if they catch you telling anybody, even your family, confessing to your wife, you can't discuss this. Um, so really, this is a very dangerous, I say, a, a Stasi-type, uh, you know, repression. And they do that is, and then they get all the details of what's been going on in the union meeting. You remember our tribe, we had a big campaign about one of the... Uh, uh, building workers over in Western Australia. Uh, over in Adelaide. And that was over oh, it was Adelaide, was it? Yes, yes, it was over in Adelaide, over in a health and safety site. And uh, in the end, the campaign was so strong and we had good lawyers and he just managed to get off at the end. 
but mostly what happens is then the evidence is uh, bought and then they start prosecuting, particularly the CFMEU, and they start fining the union $180,000. And um, if you're a unionist and you start saying, yes, look, I'm sick of the bosses not paying workers' compensation or not paying superannuation or... Or not I'm paying really tax. To, or not paying their tax or particularly these building... What the building corporations, the building companies do is they don't pay any of these benefits and then they dissolve themselves. They're called Phoenix-type companies and they start up somewhere else because people say, oh, no, no, you shouldn't go on strike. You should take up the issue and sort of negotiate it. But you can't because these, these companies are, you know, corrupt. So your basic rights, your basic freedoms, your freedom to assemble, to be in a union, uh, to discuss matters, and then you get fined. And, of course, this is happening all the time. The union, particularly the CFMU, is getting fined all the time, and then Turnbull goes on and on and says... But, of course, it's very important for people to know that the Turnbull government, of course, lies about all these sort of things. And they say, oh, it's to do with union corruption. Well, it's got nothing to do with union corruption at all. It's to do with basic industrial relations matters. How do you... uh, negotiate how do you respond how do you respond as a worker to exploitation so it's nothing to do with uh, well, well it's interesting criminality Did yeah. they say that they use yeah yeah, yeah but it's also interesting because they diverted the attention to uh, looking at industrial relations through the prism of the productivity committee commission which yeah, yeah um, they're just diverting people's attention from the core reality of safety issues and proper industrial relations Yes, of course, and uh, on um, you can go into the CFMEU websites. Um, remind me at the end, I'll give you a couple of the websites so people can look into it. And I studied also, uh, Professor uh, David Peach did a huge analysis of this big look and found out it was a total lie about improving uh, uh, productivity. Uh, it, it, uh, and even the, the Productivity Commission uh, itself said there was no evidence that the ABCC, uh, in fact, uh, improved productivity. And if you think about the normal logic of it having repression on site, um, they actually found out that productivity was going down. But, of course, that doesn't stop Turnbull and the Master yes. Builders Association. What does go up is death rates on construction sites. Yes. We've, we've just had two within the last few days. Yes, it's extraordinary. I can't actually say exactly what happened in Adelaide, but again, there was a young yep, apprentice yeah. that died. It was just... Uh, Fell through a roof, and uh, the crane operator in um, ACT. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry, yeah. I missed Canberra. And uh, I think that's what people who don't work on building sites have to realise, that they're extremely dangerous. And, of course, they uh, there was this interesting quote well over 100 years ago by Karl Marx, who found a group of employers that were meeting over 100 years ago, and they passed a resolution that said something along the lines that when we're making profit and we kill at work, we must make sure there's no penalties on us. So, man, you know, we haven't even got manslaughter laws against these uh, employers because they campaign on this sort of issue. Um, So you're getting workers who are taking, trying to take effective industrial action, and that's a basic right of anybody, or should be a basic right, and um, we're getting fined, workers and unions are getting fined, but bosses are literally, when it's for profit, 
getting away with murder. It's incredible. It's like they use that example of the industrial dispute around Grollo to argue that this is why we need the ABCC because there's this unlawful industrial action. And then you're sitting there tearing your hair out going, but they killed people. They killed three university students. That whole dispute was about safety, safety on site, but it also... You know what it was they actually make the public about? Safe. Do you know what it was really about? It was about occupational health and safety, but what the core of that issue was that the, gov- that the, the um, boss wanted to be allowed to appoint who was the oh and representative from the workers, which is completely uh, undermining the balance uh, of power within and the usefulness of the OHS system. Well, you think that would be called corruption, isn't it? Because you well, have a vested interest in yeah, it's corrupt killing workers. It's really. corrupting the system that actually works. Yes, I think you both hit it right on the head there. Because one of the, I mean, particularly the CFMEU has been over the years to be able to build up and train and make expert their own health and safety union delegates. And because the building sites go up and down, they want to have their fantastic... And I'm, I mean, I knew many of them. That, that, you know, the training is first class. And many employers, many building employers, use the union health and safety trained delegates. But when one job finishes, obviously the union wants to go to the next employer and say, look, we want to appoint and have on your site our health and safety union rep. And, of course, the law under the ABCC says, no, this is unlawful. You can't demand that. You can't go on strike for that. And, of course, uh, it's so important that then they start, and they had that big grollo dispute that was, that, as you said, what it was all about, and that goes on all the time. So, and, and, in fact, to be honest, right back in 2005 when I became studying this, and uh, it was Abbott that started it all off. He was actually the Industrial Relations Minister at the time. And he started going on about the strikes of destroying the building industry. And we studied it at the time. And to be honest, 99% of the time, the building workers were not on strike at all. So it's just a vast exaggeration. But of course, I argue, and the CFMU and other decent unionists argue, that you have to have an effective strike. And there should be more strikes in the building industry because of the extraordinarily bad conditions and the threats to health and safety and that's the sort of arguments that you and your 3CR um, listeners know about and I think it's particularly uh, dangerous if this new Senate passes it because we have such a restricted right to strike at the moment. Uh, We have penalties and limitations under the uh, so-called Fair Work Act, which the Labor government, Gillard, uh, kept from work choices. It it inherited all of those provisions there, and there's hundreds of provisions that limit the right to strike. And if we don't have... uh, Well, the right to strike is really a key means that's available to workers and unions for the promotion of our economic and social interests, but not only, um, you know, the right to strike is not only about our workplace issues, but about seeking solutions to any social or economic policy questions that workers have a direct concern with. I mean, even under the current law, so basically, the AB, you know, they say the ABCC was abolished. Well, it was abolished. It was renamed as the fair, so-called Fair Work Building Commission, and some of its powers were taken away. 
But we've got workers being prosecuted, so there was um, some very uh, important both industrial but social con uh, concerns, such as the rotting of, uh, of visas in Western Australia, and they had a unions had a rally there of three or four thousand members, and of course there were well, that, and, uh, and that, just... now you're le now you're leading into something else. We we'll, we'll have to uh, stop you there, Chris, because well, we're right run... to strike on other issues. Issues, that's exactly right. Mm. We'll have to get you back, and you'll have to talk to, to us about the uh, right to strike, because yes, yeah. you're right. These are incredibly important issues. Yeah. Thank well, they you. don't just affect just... unionists, but everyone actually. Yes, and for listeners who don't know, there, there's a very good uh, website called Stand Up, Speak Out comehome.org.au uh, which has got a lot of the details there so have a look at all of that and uh, if the Senate does pass this then uh, we'll have the Stasi operating against everybody Thanks mate Thank you very much a weak solidarity, Becky Tim Rissler, when what was promised as a consensus turned in minutes, surprisingly, into a nonsense, nonsensus, forcing the Minister for Nonsense Census, my hell no comeback, to go to ground faster than a scared rabbit, telling us for days how we had nothing to fear, privacy was so, so secure, and the system was foolproof. Of course it could handle the task. Then telling us nothing when the proverbial hit the fan, suddenly because coming unavailable for comment, probably because he was on the phone thanking big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull for handing him the poison chalice. Still, given that no one except his mother had the slightest idea who he was until the nonsensus went off so well, sorry, correction, went off, think positively, my hell. Now everyone knows who you are and admires your competence, understands why Malcolm promoted you, just leading us to ponder what those he didn't promote must be like. I said surprising because with the whole country asked to log on simultaneously, who would have expected the system to collapse? Heads will roll, an angry Malcolm assured the country while making sure his own head went nowhere near the guillotine. This has been a failure of the ABS. Uh, how's that, Malcolm? They have failed to adjust to the savage cuts we made in their budget and to my predecessor tiny a bit more for the bosses leaving them without a supremo for more than a year. They have not adopted my mantra of innovation, of making something out of nothing. Well, they did succeed in making nothing out of something. Still, the smooth operation must reassure those dissenters concerned their privacy may be at risk that there is not the slightest risk to their privacy. We're certainly reassured, they said. Uh, Malcolm, your anger, real or otherwise, is, is over another stuff-up by your government. Well, what happened to the buck stops here? It still applies, albeit slightly modified. The buck stops over there. Speaking of bucks, seeing we're adopting US of the UN of the US of the world culture and language, as the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank, announced a record $9.5 billion profit, that's $9.5 billion which would have been wasted in the public coffers, but for the foresight of former world's greatest worst treasurer Paul and our former great and beloved Prime Minister, Nuclear Hawk himself, and the Coterie, which realised those profits were wasted in the public purse. 
as it announced, it also pointed out the prospects for the next year were clouded. There were several speed humps, a favourite corporate term, facing them. Headwinds, another favourite. Every year when they announce their record profits, they warn us next year looks very unfavourable. A very sensible ploy because some lazy avaricious workers whose only minor contribution to the record profits is providing them may get uppity and think they should get some benefits from the record profits they did no more then provide, like, heaven forbid, a pay rise. We'd love to. The banks look very sincere. But as we explained, the time is just not right. Surely you heard we face speed humps, headwinds and other mixed metaphors. If only you'd asked after last year's record profits, uh, we did, the lazy avaricious workers sputtered, and you told us the same thing. Yes, yes, things were looking clouded at that time, but thankfully the road did clear. We could put down the accelerator. The wind did change and blew us forward. But look, we can't have you wasting our valuable time like this. Get back behind the counter. Well, better luck next year, workers. And the banks explained that not passing on interest rate cuts to their customers was good for their customers, leaving the customers wishing there'd been a, a slightly more detailed explanation and good for their shareholders, which didn't need an explanation, and for the depositors whose interest rates, which benefit them by a few cents, had to be slashed. After all, we can't ignore the Reserve Bank and good for stability and growth. Uh, you mean the national economy, stability and growth. It stabilises our beautiful, beautiful record profits and allows them to grow. And if we make less next year than this year's record profit, we will have to report a disastrous year. What, a, a 9.3 billion profit, for instance, would be a disaster? It's too awful to contemplate. We reported last week Malcolm had got really tough with the banks. We will call you in one day every year for a little chat over tea and biscuits and ask you lots of questions. He had them shaking at the knees. Yet there were some cynical types suggesting Malcolm's big threat was a ploy to prevent a full-scale real inquiry into the banks, as if. And Malcolm and his big economic guru scuttled them more less son looked like superhero bank slayers telling us having them in for tea and biscuits one day a year would lead to a whole new culture with the banks. We want to thank you, Malcolm. Thank you, Scuttle them. The banks looked appropriately abashed for being so tough. Also mentioned last week, the charity Zion Knows, knows because if Zion says it, there can be no doubt, knows, passed all this money to evil terrorist Hamas, was a a bit surprised, the charity that is, mainly because the amount Zion knows he passed on for terrorism was many times the charity's total budget. Well, this week Zion has grabbed another evil terrorist, this time a worker for that well-known terrorist organisation, the UN of the US of the UN of the world. He was apparently passing three times the entire UN of budget to evil terrorist Hamas, and oh, how Zion knows how evil the UN of is. It, it keeps passing resolutions suggesting Zion has no right to occupy militarily the little bit of land terrorists try to exist in, and worse, claims the settlements Zion keeps opening in other people's countries are illegal. When Zion knows they're not, based on that most reliable of confirmations, the Zion laws Zion passed, making them legal, and because it is legal to occupy militarily other 
people's terrorist people, of course, terrorists, other people's non-country, existing in their non-country because you just happen to occupy their original country, it is also legal to march into any home it likes and arrest the non-people, take them back to Zion, which they still regard as their country, showing what terrorist threats they are and confirming the need to arrest them, because they are attempting such terrorist threats as to rebuild their non-country raised by themselves, apparently, because being raised is in constant bombing raids is terrorism and Zion is not terrorist and if they rebuild all those ruins Zion will be forced to bomb them again and, and Zion hates terrorism and that's why the charity and the UN I've agreed with Zion that the people being bombed are the terrorists leading us for once to half agree with US of would-be big supremo Donald Trample the poor who says Barack for change 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 and crooked Hillary are the founders of Islamic State we agree up to a point successors of the coalition of the killing George W bash the workers tiny Blyer and the little bald-headed bloke here and their successors, but have to disagree with Donald that Barack and Hillary's guilt lies in withdrawing train killers from Iraq. Rather, we might suggest the genesis of Islamic State lies in sending them in, invading the place in the first place. Thank goodness, by the way, we've seen off this terrifying threat from China. Thank you, scuttle them for scuttling them. And we can be sure non-crooked Donald is smart enough to know there is also a direct link between the coalition of the killing and the latest just one more report of misery, desperation, self-harm, harm, despair and uh, torture in Troublewazi's concentration camps behind the razor wire. No proper papers, queue jumping, illegal boat people fleeing our bombs, slaughter, disruption, but we shouldn't worry because the Minister for Concentration concentration camps raise a wire and sink the boats Peter Duffer reminds us Troublewazi's concentration camps behind the razor wire have absolutely nothing to do with Troublewazi. We have contracted out the misery, desperation, self-harm, harm, despair and torture. And Pete also pointed out it is illegal to go into the concentration camps and report what is going on. We must look at prosecuting these criminals, although let me assure the true blue Aussie people that what is going on in the idyllic island resorts, which have absolutely nothing to do with true blue Aussie, is not going on. And finally, on logic, as an aside, this US of goody-goody person has given us the solution to homelessness. Private landlords, yes, long-term homeless could be accommodated in private rentals, she said. The one small flaw I can see in her plan and which she didn't address, private rental address, was what would happen come rent day or when the altruistic private landlord asks for a month's rent in the bond before opening the door. Interesting use of language when we think about it. Landlords can raise the rent, the homeless can't raise the rent. Despite her confidence, not sure we're going to see their homeless whooping it up in their private accommodation in the immediate, but on logic, top marks to the State Minister for Private Housing and Landlords, Martin Foley, to be poor, for telling the homeless they must leave state-owned homes because those very homes are needed to house the needy. Let's ignore the fact that the Starvation Army somehow got into the picture why public housing can't be run by, wait for it, the public. But Martin, just when did homelessness stop being needy?
Good morning. Yes, well said, Kevin. We were just having a little chat here on Solidarity Breakfast about the census and the general balls up of the online uh, thing. And what I was thinking, Kim, was that uh, it was an, uh, a perfect chance for the majority of Australians to start understanding a little bit about how online services and data collection works. Yes, it is. I mean, I don't know if anybody fully understands it. No. But I initially, I requested a hard copy of the census, not because I can't use a computer, but because from what I understand, it's impossible when filling out the online form to leave sections blank. They also have your IP address. So basically, if if you were, I'm not saying that you would, but if you were going to engage in civil disobedience, it's better to have the paper form. Mm, that's interesting. And then there's the next thing, which is uh, when you're collecting data for statistics, you don't actually need to get people's names because that's not actually what stats collection is about, is it? No, this is actually quite scary because the thing that uh, scared me the most was they talked about, all oh, the reason that we want your name associated with your address is so that we can have more rich data, that we can link it with other data sets, you know, presumably about you. And I find that really worrying, more worrying than them keeping your name and not getting rid of your name because in that sense it doesn't really matter if they get rid of your name because the data is so rich that it's impossible to de-identify you, which is something that they sometimes have problems with in academia when they're doing, especially in medical research, where it's ethical, you know, because if you're doing that kind of research you need to fill out ethics approval. It's ethical that you don't identify people's important medical information, but it can be problematic that if it's so rich, then it might be impossible to de-identify them, which is what really concerned me about the census more than them keeping your name. Yeah, which is kind of interesting. And the other thing that was quite curious was that uh, actually they weren't hacked. It was a, um, what do you call it, a de I think they I think they were saying that it was a denial of service attack which they seem to be backtracking on now because I think they realized that saying it was a denial that they were hacked was actually more concerning to the public because <laughs> the public was worried about their data being safe but it seems like their system was it simply couldn't withstand the number of requests that it was getting, which, of course, is something that you should have tested and anticipated. Yeah, because, I mean, it is everybody all at once. Also, they outsourced it to IBM, which is That's an interesting detail. Yeah, and there were tech people, um, I think, oh, I can't remember the organisation that the woman was from, but she had worked in IT for 10 years before joining a, a consumer group um, that uh, looks into IT issues and human rights issues. And she was saying that this is the very, very basic stuff that you test before you put your service online. And so really it was a, a failure to do that. And, of course, the government is now being forced to defend a system that they don't really understand because they outsourced it. Well, isn't that interesting? Anyway, we'll move on now to... Um, thanks very much for that, because um, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there, including me, Who's well, I wouldn't here. pretend to be an expert, so if I've got something wrong, call in and correct me. That's exactly right. Anyway, we'll move on to a little bit of American politics with Vince Emmanuel. You're on Solidarity Breakfast. So I was listening to Democracy Now! the other day and it had two black Americans talking about the pros and cons of having Trump and uh, Hillary Clinton. One of them was saying that, uh, you know, whatever the deficits of uh, Clinton is, we have to focus on the fact that not 
allowing Trump to be in the White House. And then, of course, I'm thinking the White House. What a terrible name. A White House that was built by black slaves. And then that funny guy, Riley, Bill Riley, saying something ridiculous. That funny guy. <laughs> I love that you refer to him as the funny guy. <laughs> he said, he said, said, said the most ridiculous uh, thing. We fed them well. Oh, goodness. Yeah, they were fed well and they were... They had places to sleep. You know, there's a huge disconnect. I mean, this gets to something that's probably very deep. Well, it is very deep. I shouldn't say probably. It is absolutely very deep in your culture and also our culture, and that's this culture of white supremacy. And it's easy to just throw out that term and say, okay, well, we live in a culture of white supremacy. To get more concrete, I think the problem is for many white people living in the United States or, say, Australia, for instance, they are very disconnected from what those historical realities mean. So in other words, I remember stories that my grandfather told me. In fact, I remember stories that my great-grandmother told me. She lived until she was 101 years old. So I had, you know, I had an opportunity to hear about stories from someone who was born in a different century than I was. Um, I remember those things. I think a lot of people remember those things. Now, if those stories include uh, slavery, segregation, Jim Crow laws, and in, in, so, for example, in the United States, the inability to vote, so on and so forth. I mean, these things, you know, not to mention the sort of murder and genocide that goes along with that, uh, you know, these, these things run very deep in our societies. And for black Americans and for black Australians, those realities are at the forefront. Uh, they're remembered. They're talked about. They're part of their histories, part of their cultures. Uh, part of their understanding of growing up in this culture of white supremacy. For people like Bill O'Reilly, and I think for a lot of white Australians or white Americans, it's virtually impossible to understand what that context is like if you're not living in it. And I think this is very true when it comes to foreign policy as well. You know, It's very difficult, say, to get Australians or Americans to understand what it would be like to live in Afghanistan or Iraq or Libya, or Syria, or any of the number of nations that are enduring American drone strikes with the help of Australia and our European allies, among others, uh, bombings, uh, occupations, and so forth. These things, I think, for a lot of white people living in places like Australia or the United States are virtually impossible to fathom. They just can't, they, they can't imagine what it's like. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, there is a, a very strong... Uh, rhetoric around uh, the the strong pretending that they're the ones that are the victims. All the rhetoric is around that. You know, we have to go out and fight these wars because they're coming to get us. That type of thing. Yeah, this is very interesting too about Trump's rhetoric. I mean, his people and his supporters, I don't know if he really believes this or not, but we'll just take him at his word. They believe that the United States is being taken advantage of by, <laughs> by countries like Mexico and Colombia and so on. I mean, this is really wild. I mean, so, yes, you spin this around instead of telling American people. And this, of course, was the at least we had someone like Bernie Sanders in the campaign telling people, actually, it's American corporate elites, banks and so on that are taking advantage of you and other people around the world. It's not just that you're being taken advantage of as an American worker. You know, it's drawing this sort of these international parallels and understandings. And, and that's important because Trump's message is quite the opposite. It's a very nativist message. It's 
you know, us against the world. It's let's bring America back to its its glory days. Let's uh, take advantage of people for the benefit of American workers and so on. I mean, this is hearkening back to some very antiquated rhetoric and antiquated political policies. Although I will say, you know, today, very interesting. I had posted on social media an article and an interview with a Russian scholar here in the United States, Stephen F. Cohen, who I think is one of the best uh, scholars with regard to U.S.-Russian relations. So for those who are listening, check out Stephen Cohen's work. That's C-O-H-E-N. And, you know, people right away, they're like, oh, well, you know, Trump and Putin and this and that. And it, it's been very interesting, Annie, the the rhetoric among the small L liberals in the United States, the Democrats and so on, has been to take a more harsh stance towards Russia. And this is very interesting because they want him to take a more aggressive stance towards Russia. It's very interesting. I mean, this, is, this has been the Democrats' rhetoric since Obama has been in office. This has been the rhetoric coming out of the State Department and official policies from the U.S. government toward Russia. And this goes all the way back, as Cohen mentions, the end of the Cold War, when the United States and NATO continually expanded eastward, when we were trying to expand the EU eastward and, the Europe and our European allies, and surrounded Russia with ballistic missile systems, have invaded and occupied countries throughout the Middle East, and attacking, including uh, Syria and Iran, Russia's two major allies in the region, and, and we could go down the list. So... Obviously, we have been the aggressor here. And once again, the story is being flipped. Americans are being told, you're not the aggressor. We're just the democracy-loving, peace-loving Americans. And it's really this big bad guy, Vladimir Putin, who's actually tr trying to cause all of these troubles, and he's the aggressor and so on. Now, the facts don't match up with that, number one. And number two, what's really dangerous about this is that it looks as though Trump and his advisors, though this is... This this is very much opposed to the standard neoconservative Republican position on Russia, which has always been extremely aggressive. Trump and his advisors have been trying to take a more soft stance toward Russia in the Ukraine, most notably in the Republican um, convention. They had a, a, I guess a committee comes together. They come up with a platform, however however symbolic it may be, and part of that platform and part of what Trump's advisors were pushing for was for the United States not to take a clear stance in terms of arming the Ukraine and arming people within Ukraine. So it's very interesting. So you have people from the Trump campaign saying, wait a minute, we should maybe our stance should be that we don't provide arms and weaponry to Ukraine, to the, not only the state of Ukraine, but say elements within Ukraine, resistance fighters and so forth. And the Democrats at the same time are making the argument that we have to take a more strict stance, that we should be arming people in Ukraine, that we should continue the policies that, were, uh, that Obama and Clinton have pushed over the last however many years. And this is very interesting. You know, is that to say that overall, as I mentioned before, that I would rather have Trump in office? No, there's many reasons for that. We could talk about that. But what's interesting to me is all of these nuances and these contradictions. So on some issues, it's clear Clinton is better than Trump, and I mean specifically when we're talking about, say, social issues, even issues when it comes to the environment. So Trump, when asked about nuclear energy, said that, of course, you know, we should build as many nuclear power plants as we can possibly build. <laughs> when he was asked about climate change, he told the press, 
well, I think it was made up by the Chinese so they could steal our manufacturing jobs. You know, this, this is the conversation. This is, this is what, you know, the most powerful person in the world in November. You could very well get someone. I don't think it'll happen, as I mentioned before. I think Clinton is going to be the, the nominee. But nonetheless, you could very well get someone in office who believes that climate change is a hoax created by the Chinese to steal American manufacturing jobs. That, to me, is a significant difference. Now, whether or not, does that mean Clinton isn't going to be beholden to fossil fuel industry? Does that mean Clinton isn't going to, say, propose fracking and so on and so forth? I don't know if she will or she won't. I mean, I think the, the question for her will be, who is she, uh, who does Clinton have to answer to? And that's the union groups, the environmental groups, the progressive and liberal groups who got her elected, including many people within the black and brown communities. So th that's much different than Trump's base. And Trump's base is 90 to 95% white. So now we're talking about an almost exclusively white Republican Party, which is also a very dangerous thing. Should remember, should remind people of South Africa, which in my opinion is sort of what this nation has been drifting toward for some time. And I think it's going to only increase these racial divisions. And, you know, you, so his base is a lot different. Who he has to answer to is a lot different. And the rabid Christian religious right and the sort of reactionary nativists and xenophobes and racists who make up a big swath of Trump's support base, they absolutely don't believe in global warming. I mean, in fact, some of them believe, you know, again, what Trump's saying, which is that the Chinese created this, this idea of global warming to steal American manufacturing jobs. I mean, these... People have to realize that his base of support also believes crazy things like upwards of 50, 60 percent of them believe that Obama is a Muslim and that he was born outside of the United States and hence doesn't qualify to even be the president of the United States. These are big portions. This isn't like, oh, five, ten percent of the population. This just must be a bunch of crazy, like kind of a crazy fringe. No, we're talking about the majority of Republican voters now believe these things. And a big part of that has to do with the fact that the uh, symbolic leader of the party now is a conspiracy theorist, billionaire nut. Um, and this is a major problem. It's, I mean, you could see it now, but the contradictions are Trump actually has a better policy toward Russia than Clinton does. Does that mean that we should vote for him based on solely that policy or solely what he says, because what he says and what he'll do could be two very different things. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying we should, as Stephen Cohen mentioned recently, it's up to us to be responsible enough to have these conversations. And there are nuances and there are contradictions. And I think it's important for us to point out these positions instead of just, you know, glossing over them and saying, oh, well, you know, Trump's a lunatic and Clinton is, even if you don't like Clinton, she's very reasonable in this or that. That's, it's too simplistic. And I think it's really important for us to also understand that even among that rabid base that supports Trump, a good percentage of them are becoming anti-interventionists. A good percentage of his supporters have sons and daughters who went to Iraq and Afghanistan. This is why Trump is so forcefully spoken out against war in Iraq, although his solution is to make the Middle East glow, as he mentioned, which means <laughs> to drop nuclear bombs on the <laughs> Middle East. And he's completely serious about that. He's been talking about using tactical nuclear weapons in Libya Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And that's a very real thing. Oh, uh, my that's... goodness. What uh, role does Russia play in their either economic endgame or their fantasy? Well, there's different positions here. I mean, number one, this, this obviously, for those who are older, remember, 
that this is a uh, nation-state rivalry that goes all the way back, say, to 1917 during the Russian after during and after the Russian yeah, yeah, Revolution. Yeah, when um, American capitalists lost money, basically. Well, not only lost money, but for them, it was a, it was a very it was an ideological threat. Yeah. It was a, it was there was this threat that there could be an alternative to the global capitalist imperialist system in the U.S. and and that posed a threat to them, at least in their eyes, ideologically. So obviously, this goes back almost a century now. We're talking about a century of of conflict, and primarily the aggressor, of course, has been the United States. Right now, I think Russia is playing a convenient role in U.S. foreign policy, and also this hegemonic view that a lot of people have within the United States that we should dominate the world because, you know, the reality is th- things, at least from an ideological perspective or from a political perspective, they haven't gone too well in the so-called war on terror. Uh, we now, as I mentioned, we have a Republican candidate who's openly saying that the war in Iraq was was a ridiculous war and that it should never have been fought. You know, this well, coming well, you from do the know party. that um, a war on terror is like putting water into sand, you know, like take, trying to take the sea, water from the sea and putting it into right. a hole in the sand. I mean, <laughs> it's a stupid idea. <laughs> no, it's ridiculous. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely, it's ridiculous. I'm so obviously it was created. You can't have a war on a tactic, first yeah, of all. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's obvi- obviously it was created as a fear tactic because there's no actual logic involved. Right. No, and, and you know, the, the interesting thing about the war on terror from that perspective is that, you know, the United States, the old saying is true. You know, a when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, so that's when right. you spend when you spend fifty four percent of your discretionary budget on the military, when the military plays an outsized role within your cultural sphere, when the military is sort of the biggest and baddest institution within the United States well, anything that happens, I mean, we militarized the uh, Hurricane Katrina when it hit in 2005 in New That's Orleans. Right. I mean, yeah. So we, we militarize everything because a big portion of our state apparatus, if not almost the entire state apparatus, has been militarized. So in Osama bin Laden and other people understood this. I mean, well, it's very interesting if you read the literature that these different jihadi groups were writing at the time, particularly the fatwa that was released by Osama bin Laden. And I want to say this is in the mid-90s now. They understood quite well that it, what the United States would do if it were attacked. They knew. I mean, this is, not, this is not rocket science. First of all, states respond in that way. It doesn't matter what state it is. A state apparatus, the way that modern states are set up, is going to respond the way that the French state has responded to terrorism, the way that the Russian state has responded to terrorism, the way that the United States has responded to terrorism, and the way that Australia has responded, or any number of states around the world. They're going to crack down. They're going to go after civil liberties. They're going to try and increase spying and surveillance. They're going to further militarize the police and, and, and security forces and so on. So we responded in that way. And as people understood who were at Primarily here we're talking about Sunni jihadists who understood that the United States, if drawn into a war in the Middle East, would never get out of the war in the Middle East. They, I mean, I think in a lot of ways the United States' so-called enemies and even our allies or, say, uh, passive observers around the world, they understand how the United States would behave better than the average American. I mean, I think a lot of people 
and this is the this is this way I think whether we're talking about governments cultures whether we're talking sometimes it's even relationships you know sometimes you're in a bad relationship and you don't see the two people within this relationship don't see how bad the relationship is as much as people from the outside can see it and I think this is true in the United States where a lot of people here are just now I think waking up to just how bad the United States is not only internally for our citizens but how you know what we've been doing to people abroad and that's much different than people around the world who've understood this for a long time and I have understood you know so getting back to the war on terror that if we could be drawn into a war in the Middle East that it would be a never-ending war uh, and this people you know people fell for it I mean this is something that I think uh, ideologically, these are two sides of the same coin. I mean, the right wing in the Middle East or North Africa is no different than the right wing in Europe is no different than the right wing in the U.S. I mean, these right. yeah. are entities that play off of each other. They're both extremely reactionary. They're both extremely religious. You know, they're both extremely tribal in their thinking um, and, and, you know, so on. So, yeah, I mean, your point about the war on terror is completely correct. But, you know, now what is interesting is these sort of shifting uh, views within the population. So you have people in the Republican Party who rejected the status quo. And this is amazing. So we have to remember that Trump beat 16 other competitors in the Republican primary. All 16 of those people were very sort of established politicians. Trump won that primary by arguing that U.S. foreign policy has been a disaster, that our boys and girls are being killed overseas for no reason, that there's no way we should have fought these wars, that the Bush family was corrupt and incompetent, and that you know they were wrong to launch these wars. I mean, he's, he attacked every, essentially everyone within the Republican establishment. And that's important to try and understand how things are shifting within the country, how even within the more reactionary right-wing elements of American society, have becoming less and less interventionist and less and less inclined to go along with these military actions. And that, for the sake of activism and organizing, I think is very interesting. The whole thing about what's going on for the Republicans is potentially more important than actually the presidential race. He's not uh, bothered by having an ethical framework. He doesn't have an ethical framework. So he's able to say anything. So uh, John Oliver, for example, points out that when Trump says that he's self-funding his campaign, in actual fact, what he's done is uh, loaned money to the campaign. And so all the people who are contributing are now paying him back for running for president. Now, right. on one hand, people would say, oh, how clever of him. But in actual fact, it's not. He's actually misrepresenting what he's doing. And he Absolutely. does it all the time, all the time. So when he says, I hear you, I hear your pain. We had a fellow here called Bjelke Peterson. He used to sound like a person who was completely inarticulate. But what he used to do was say, begin sentences. He'd say five sentences that were button pushes. If one didn't get you, another one would. And uh, Trump does the same. Absolutely. I mean, he understands his base. He understands the American population better than most of our journalists. And that says something. I mean, this says something not only about his sort of cleverness in terms of being able to tap into these sentiments, but it also says a lot about the disconnect. Yeah. The disconnect from our 
dominant media institutions, liberals, highly educated, urban, cosmopolitan types, you know, sipping on martinis on the weekends and going boating and skiing and so forth. I mean, these, these people are completely disconnected from what's happening on the streets of America. And we see the same with Hillary Clinton. Of course, it's been very difficult for her to garner a lot of support because she had someone like Bernie Sanders out there who was like, hey, I understand what's happening in the streets. I understand the pain that people are going through, and this woman really doesn't understand. She might understand a little better than Donald Trump, but you have two people now who really don't understand much about the average person. I mean, you can't, when you're a billionaire who is given a one million, I don't even know, it could be more, who knows if this is true anyway, but as Trump said, you know, he was given a $1 million loan by his dad. He said it was a small loan, you know. <laughs> but to argue that Clinton and Trump are simply one and the same, I think is really missing the boat. And, you know, I hear this argument from a lot of white leftists, from a lot of sort of privileged, uh, say, middle class, upper middle class leftists, but I'm not hearing this from my black and brown friends. I'm not hearing this no, no, from my friends so who live all. in predominantly Latino communities. All of my Latino friends are completely freaked out about Trump. Uh, I'm not hearing this in black communities and primarily African-American black communities who are completely freaked out about Trump. And I'm not hearing this among the many, many, many single women that I know uh, and married women, but also a lot of single women or single moms that I know uh, who feel as though you know, Trump is a complete and utter massage. Yes, well, there you go. We have to finish that. And uh, we're coming up next is uh, Asia-Pacific Links. We've had on the program uh, motor kite dreaming, people talking about that. Then we moved on to talking the about the ABCC creeping up on us. This is the week that was, and we've just been hearing from Vince Emmanuel, and we'll hear from him later in the year. All right, we're out of here. See you later. Pretty lights and shiny things you think you're depressed, but it's probably just too much coffee in your tea, too much caffeine in your dreams. Cars will drive too mad and fast up and down King Street. They don't understand where I'm coming from. It's a 50k zone, but they're taking over me. Flash my lights, but they got no control. No control, no control. Pretty lights and shiny things, and Sydney's such a pretty thing. I'm waiting for the lights to change, and thinking I should move away. The cars will drive too mad. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.